0: I think that there is so much value sometimes in the nonsensical, in the whimsical, in the, you know what, you guys, I just want y'all to come and laugh at this silly thing. I just want y'all to come and not think about all of the problems that are going on in the world right now for two hours or for this podcast or for this TV show. We actually don't want to bring any of that in here because levity is something that we also need sometimes.
1: What happens in between is all about the awkward middle phase of creation. You know, after you've taken your first steps, but before you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor, join me, Athena, as I learn from artists, creators, and entrepreneurs about the tactical and emotional methods they use after the initial excitement of following your dreams meets the reality of following your dreams. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of What Happens in Between. Today, we have the Casey Willis, who is a creator and arts advocate based out of Atlanta. She founded the production company Could Be Pretty Cool, whose mission is to produce unique creative experiences to inspire community building through the arts. Casey has also done a lot of incredible work in the theater scene or has hosted several podcasts including you heard me right. Hi Casey. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How's it going over there? It's dark and stormy and rainy, but all things considered, I can't complain. Yep, love to hear it. <laughs> so, we're going to start I didn't think we were going to start here, but you're really into horror films hmm. <laughs> so are storms, I guess, to me, like part of the aesthetic of someone who would be into horror films like storms would kind of be like your jam? I
0: don't mind a good thunderstorm. They are definitely just one of the natural phenomenons that have one of the most interesting and iconic sound identities, Mm -hmm. which is all like really nerdy sounding. But yeah, no, I don't mind a thunderstorm when I can stay inside and enjoy them. Right.
1: Okay. Makes sense. Mm. So I would love to hear a bit more about kind of how you got into sound And art generally, but like, it seems like more specifically, you've been moving towards sound design and podcasts. So I'd love to just hear a bit of that journey.
0: Sure. So growing up, I was really into music, I played piano, guitar, bass, And ended up majoring in music in Mm -hmm. college. And I thought that I wanted to be a superstar producer like Pharrell and Timbaland. But upon graduating during the Great Recession, learned that that was not a job that people were hiring for. But what people were hiring for were people who were on the technical side of audio,
1: Mm.
0: engineers, people who could run live sound, people who could do the jobs in audio that perhaps seem less glamorous, but are also incredibly important. So I ended up going back to school to get my master's in sound design, just so that I could become a more versatile and well-rounded, I guess, sound knowledge carrier. And from there, I fell into doing sound for live theater. I was doing location sound, which is like holding the boom mic and mixing for commercials and small film shoots. And eventually, largely due to the pandemic and all that ensued in 2020, When all the live things went away, I fell into podcasting. So since 2020, I have pretty much been doing freelance podcast work.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. I love hearing stories around like actually making a living in art, which is super possible. But I think many of us growing up, it seems like there's only the one aspect of whichever art form you're interested in that you could like sustainably live on like it seems like you need to be a celebrity or it seems like you need to be the like frontman of a band but there's actually so many ways to make money with music or sound design specifically that I think are just like not really obvious until you're in the work
0: I think one of the best pieces of advice that I ever received that helped me to exactly what you're talking about, realize that you don't have to be a celebrity to succeed in the arts professor in undergrad, very simply said, watch the credits of any film or television show and the stars of the show, you'll get, you know, 10, 20 people. But all the rest of those credits are people who are behind the scenes, the producers, the editors, the wardrobe, the tech. And so there are way more opportunities in those areas to be able to succeed in arts and entertainment than that top line of being you know, the star of a show. So once I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, that does make more sense. This is a good way to still work in this industry, but not necessarily be at the forefront or in the spotlight.
1: Absolutely. I love that reframe because the visibility and the availability is like inverse. So the most visible people are celebrities, but there's bucket of like a hundred of them out of the 7 billion people. But the majority of people who are making a living in creative spaces are lower on the visibility scale. No, it is true. Absolutely. Yeah. So what has been a project that you have participated in that has been most impactful to your work right now? Like what is a project that helped to kind of shape your aesthetic as a creator? I would say, so
0: summer of 2019 in the before times, Mm -hmm. I was designing sound for a show called Grounded by George Brandt with a small theater collective here called the Atlanta Theater Club. And I think the reason that that particular show was really impactful to me is because the director and the stage manager of the show were the two people who ran the company and all of the designers were women, woman identifying designers. So the lighting designer set designer projections, a very small team, maybe seven, eight of us. And it just, for the first time on any project, I could feel the equity. I could feel there was no hierarchy, even the director or the stage manager no one talked to anyone like they were above anyone else. Everyone was really on a team making this project. Mm -hmm. And what that experience really showed me is that oftentimes, especially when you see things on film and television with women working together, there's like a cattiness element that's always thrown in there. But it really showed me that When people are working collectively on a project that they're all very important, that they're all very passionate about, that they think is important, there doesn't need to be any offstage drama. Like we can make all the drama happen on the stage together and it can feel like teamwork. It can feel like a fun activity and not just, you know, something we're doing for a job And that's the mentality that I try to bring to all of my projects now. I don't want anyone to ever feel like they can't speak up because of hierarchy. I don't want anyone to ever feel like they're not having fun because, I mean, we're making theater, we're making podcasts, like this should be fun. (laughs) So I would say that small theater collective job definitely impacted my view of collaborative art making.
1: That is so incredible. I really appreciate that it was not exactly what you were making but just the way that it was being created that has like affected you so much. I think that's really beautiful. And I agree like it can be so easy to become self-serious in a when working on something to the point where you like rob yourself of the fun.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yes, absolutely.
1: Yes. So you mentioned this collective project and a lot of your work is focused on the communal aspect of art. And I'm really interested in several things, but I'd like to start with, do you feel like there's a difference or if people should have a distinct definition between audience and community?
0: Wow. What a great question. So Throughout my time working as an audio artist and sound designer, I've also held several roles in arts marketing, audience building, arts data analytics. And so approaching this question from both of those perspectives, I feel like your audience does need to be a part of your community if you want that audience to remain active and engaged and supportive. And the ways in which an artist or a producer or a director can do that vary so much depending on the project, depending on what the scope of the work is. I would like to think that there is no separation between an audience and a community, though With everything that's happening, I wish I could say post-pandemic, but through continued pandemic, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it is increasingly difficult to capture the attention of a large swath of people right now. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like digging in deeper to making a community around your work, even if it's a smaller reach than perhaps could have been possible pre-pandemic, I think that's really more important right now. Having that small, dedicated collective of people who will tune in to every episode, who will leave a review, who will leave a comment, even if it's only a fraction of you know potential listeners right now holding on to people who are just really into what you're doing is to me more important than just getting numbers right now.
1: Mm, yes, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I'm sure folks listening have heard of the kind of thousand true fans. I forget who coined that term, but I'm interested in from what you've seen working with strategizing for arts organizations As well as potentially with your own clients, Mm. what are the most important components of a healthy community? So,
0: I would say the most important components of a healthy community are being able to tap into people's organic desire to support and promote you. Mm. There is nothing more surprising and wonderful than you know, you're randomly tagged in a post and someone's like, I found this show and it's so good and you should listen to it. You know, you didn't spend any ad dollars, you know, pay for an influencer to say anything. Like when someone just organically finds your work and is excited about it and supports it, there's nothing greater. And so for me, my next thought is like, okay, why did this person resonate with this, I'm talking in particular about some of my podcast work, like why did they resonate with this and how can I figure out who their theoretical friends are that they're telling, you know, you should listen to this too. You know, should I interact with them back? Should I invite them to a special thing? Should I give them special access to some behind the scenes content? I think there's a lot that arts marketers and artists have to do that is perhaps more strategy based to try to get listeners and audience members to tap into what they're doing but i don't know just figuring out ways to deepen the connections with people who organically are just digging what you're doing is the most important
1: aspect of audience building for me mhm so that really makes me think of there is a distinction these are two different actions attracting people just to listen to give it a chance versus nurturing once you have the attention of that person, or once that person is like bought in, which part of that equation do you find that your clients have the most difficulty with?
0: Again, now, I mean, just because for both the digital entertainment world and mm-hmm. now that theater and live performance is starting to come back, the live entertainment world. Both of those uh, sort of factions of entertainment have difficulty in the attraction of new people Mm -hmm. uh, stage for completely different reasons. So understandably, with the sort of live theater and live performance uh, industry, attracting people who maybe didn't go to the theater pre-pandemic now, it's actually a lot of theaters and live performance venues are trying to maintain and retain their existing database Mm -hmm. because a lot of folks haven't returned to live performance for understandable reasons right now or possibly headed into a new wave. So it's like retaining existing patrons is difficult. So attracting brand new people is almost like, oh God, how do we do that? And then for the digital world, there's just so much stuff, you know? (laughs) Yeah, we're all tapped into our phones and our computers, and we all have 10 streaming services, you know, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: whether you're launching a web series or a podcast or a blog or a streaming audio show that attracting new people to your thing in the sea of bajillion other things. Yes, that I would say is probably the greatest challenge right now, attracting new people into one's audience pool.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You actually reminded me of in one of their mission statements or somewhere on the website, just talking about Netflix as a corporation, they acknowledge pretty explicitly. They're like, we are actively competing to be a more attractive entertainment option than hanging out with your friends. (laughs) Mm, Yep. I mean, it's true. Like that's where the competition is. Everyone who is putting something out into the world is competing against all these other things. But I just thought it was so funny for Netflix to say, yeah, we don't want you to hang out with your (laughs) friends.
0: They want our data. So they're going to figure out a way to keep us engaged and
1: give them viewer data. (laughs) Absolutely. So I want to take this just a bit more granular and I'd love to know what has been the most effective tactic for you in terms of attracting the right person and maybe even more than attracting the right person is like defining who is the right person.
0: That's really interesting. I have done a lot of thinking and musing over how an individual artist or an arts organization can draft their fantasy audience Mm. and my thinking on this has changed a lot of uh, post-pandemic, of course. Mm-hmm. I would say pre-pandemic, there is an arts marketer and audience builder that I really admire named Sarah Lawrence. And she sort of coined this phrase, finding points of common connection. Mm-hmm. And so basically the strategy is you think about who your fantasy audience member is, you think about the product or the production or the piece of art that you're putting on. And it's almost like connecting the dots, those points of common connection. So for example, let's say you're a theater company who's doing, I don't know, let's just say something, some Shakespeare play. And you want to attract Latinx, Gen Z students, And so it's like, okay, what are some of the commonalities or what this student be listening to that we could utilize in our marketing for them to see a TikTok video, you know, about our play and they would get excited about our play or where are those students hanging out where we need to put our posters or our rack cards or something and just really getting granular about specifically who your audience archetype is, who your fantasy audience member is, and trying to figure out what sort of, I don't know, breadcrumbs can we drop to eventually get them to pay attention to what we're doing. That was sort of my pre-pandemic strategy and thought process. Mm -hmm. Post-pandemic or currently in pandemic, to be honest, I think there are a lot of marketers who are still sort of, saying things and being really confident about strategy. And this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. I think it's very wild, wild west right now. I don't think anyone knows. Mm. And I think as unfortunately, if we keep seeing waves of this COVID and different things happening, I think it's just going to be a very evolutionary process to get people to pay attention to new artwork. Ooh, there's a lot in there.
1: There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) Oh man. So you don't think that we would as a large society, as a humanity, (laughs) a humanity, you don't think that we would come into some kind of a new routine just around the waves. I think right now we're in our like denial moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> where we're pretending like it's not just kind of going to always be waves. Mm. I'm not wishing that on us, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> heard. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so I hear when you speak such a distinct like delineation between pre panny and post slash during. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you mentioned. That you're really interested in is the like socio political climate and how that affects arts marketing. And allow me to give you your flowers for a moment because you have worked with organizations such as the Maryland Symphony Orchestra, as well as the Seven Stages Theater. So, should organizations be political? I'm thinking about like the vanilla wafers cookie. Like, should they have a stance on like, bisexual erasure? Mm. Or should they, I don't know, just (laughs) not have a stance, like mind their own business and stay in the like cookie business. Obviously that's different for arts organizations, but I am wondering in general, where is that line for companies and organizations? Like how much should they be involved or explicit about political views in your opinion?
0: Mm -hmm. I think that When it comes to arts organizations in particular, whether or not they should be vocal about political issues, whether or not they should, you know, just stick to making plays or stick to making films or TV or whatever they do. I honestly think that it depends. I think that there is so much value sometimes in the nonsensical, in the whimsical, In the, you know what, you guys, I just want y'all to come and laugh at this silly thing. I just want y'all to come and not think about all of the problems that are going on in the world right now for two hours or for this Mm. podcast or for this TV show. We actually don't want to bring any of that in here because levity is something that we also need sometimes. I think that there is a lot of validity in an arts organization or an artist who is simply trying to create to make people feel good, to make people feel better. But in that same vein, I think there's so much important work that's being done by artists and organizations that is of a political nature, that is telling really hard-hitting stories and digging into discomfort and not wanting their audiences to leave feeling, you know, comfortable Mm -hmm. or feeling like heroes for just leaving the house. Although, as I say that, in a way, especially in the live performing space, We are asking audience members to potentially (laughs) risk their health, their safety to come out to see a show. And so we're asking a lot of audiences right now. And I think as long as an organization is true to their mission and their vision, whether or not, again, they're just like, hey, we're trying to make something to make you feel good, come on out, or hey, we feel very strongly as an organization about these socio-political issues and we're going to speak to them, come on out. I don't think either stance is right or wrong. I just think it depends on the artist or the
1: organization. Okay. A uh, very diplomatic answer. I like it. Yes, yeah, I'd try. How do you think that this current climate, and you can interpret that however you want, how do you think this current climate is impacting people who creators in the space creators i mean in all directions but like specific to like folks who love creating live work how have you been seeing them affected through this
0: it's it's been weird i will have to admit it has been interesting so actually tonight this is what march the 18th opening night for a uh, play my first live play that i've done sound design for in 2 years and the experience of course has included testing both pcr testing and rapid tests and people have to wear masks the you know whole time during rehearsal and it's a different vibe for sure but it is kind of refreshing to be in a collaborative space with people in person again. And so I think that with all of the evolving improvements that have been made with a uh, pandemic safety, we know that masks work. We know that vaccines work. I hope this isn't controversial for you on your show. I'm sure your <laughs> listeners probably aren't are going to We are
1: anti-maskers over here.
0: <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm in the south, so I never know like if mm-hmm. these things are like controversial or not, but it's like we know what we can and should do to do these live productions as safely as possible. And it feels like the theatrical community is being very diligent in it, administering those procedures. That being said, I sometimes and this is just anecdotal my personal opinion, With everything being shut down for almost two years. I mean, these are theaters who almost for two years did not have full seasons. There was no ticket revenue. There was no Mm. connection with audiences in that way. It feels different. Right. I hate, you know, this new normal. We've been saying new normal for two years now. I don't know what the quotation fingers new normal is going to be for live theater, particularly as we're potentially going to see like more disruptions to the flow of being able to do live work all the time. So yeah, that was kind of a convoluted answer, but it's like exactly how I feel about the return to live work. It's like we're doing everything we can to make sure that these shows can go on safely and everyone's safe and also having that extra layer of attention that we have to give to the process. It's like unconsciously, I don't know. It makes me feel a little wearier in a way.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm, Yeah, it's a hefty topic. You know, I would expect nothing but at least a gentle ramble. (laughs) Oh, gentle ramble. I love that. So I want to transition a bit into some of your more current work. You Heard Me Right, which is a podcast that was birthed out of the podcast, SoundUp Accelerator program. Mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. Let's start there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think it's a really brilliant concept. I love the way that you interact with the fact that every person receives, like you can give five people the same exact theme or the same exact like piece of content and there will be completely different reactions and interpretations. So I really love that you were able to capture that in podcast form. (laughs) That makes me think about, so with Could Be Pretty Cool, which is your production company. So when you're creating experiences and it's specific around like encouraging community, how much does that like multiverse (laughs) kind of energy come into the creation, like the projects that you choose to put out. The multiverse is actually a very
0: interesting choice of words. And I think a lot of the inspiration for the concept behind the show came from the fact that I used to be kind of like a social media comment section arguer. Oh, I was, yeah, keyboard warrior, always, <laughs> you know, going back and forth with complete strangers. And you know, we could be arguing about something and I would have a link like at the end of my comment, like here, look at this graph, that'll show you. Mm -hmm. And then they, you know, respond back with a link to another graph that says the exact opposite thing, both from credible sources. And so it really made me realize like reality and perspective and the way that people view the world can be so valid and real to them, but so- Opposite and bizarre and wrong, you know, to someone else. And I decided that being a comment section warrior wasn't the best use of this revelation. And so instead, I wanted to figure out a way to use the power of anonymity, the power of wanting to say something about a particular piece of input to someone else, but not feeling like. You have to be argumentative about your opinion, about your perspective, like just being able to say how you feel without, I don't know, having to one up somebody or try to be the smartest person on the thread. I don't know. And so in a not argumentative format and, you know, we've had some heated moments during our in-person group discussions when we finally bring all the guests together. But I mean, it's just so much easier to be snarky and rude and all of that behind your keyboard. When you're in person with someone who you've never met before, and especially when you're already connected through something positive, you've just made a sort of collaborative artwork together. The, I don't know, the vibe just completely changes. And so that's really what I wanted to show with this podcast. Like we have so much capacity to like be jerks to one another, but Mm -hmm. like- We could also just, I don't know, discuss our differences and hang out and chill. And it's not a whole thing. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I really love it. I think in some ways there's already a connection to the artist when Mm -hmm. you're like Mm -hmm. interacting with the work. Or there's some kind of, even if it's not a connection with that artist, it's like you found it because it was suggested. So there's like either an algorithm or a person who knows you, who's like brought you into the world of that work. But with your show, what I really appreciate is like, it is truly anonymous. Like you're just receiving the product upon Mm, like mm -hmm. to react to. And yeah, I think that's interesting. Oh, thank
0: you. I guess.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad. Yeah. No, it's really cool. How was the accelerator program in general? Did you find that to be a very communal space? It was an
0: absolutely incredible experience. It was very rarely do individuals who have never tried a thing before have the opportunity to be selected to cultivate a skill set that they never previously had. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I had zero podcasting experience before the accelerator, I just had an idea. And to have received the training, you know, in the workshops during our accelerator to have just received like positive feedback, like, oh yeah, you know, your show sounds kind of weird, but interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Keep going. (laughs) You know, it was like, wow, I might have a not horrible idea. Mm -hmm. And that's something else sort of going back to talking about the impactful, the impact that not just a piece of artwork can have, but the process That is a similar attitude that I want to bring to future collaborations as well. I don't think that it's as important in creative fields for someone to have had specific experience doing a thing. If they have a good idea, if they have good work ethic, if they have passion, I think giving people a chance could potentially be worthwhile for so many different people. So, yeah, it was just a really... I don't know, it was just a really low pressure experience that helped me to learn that like I could do this, like I could be a podcaster.
1: That's amazing. That's so lovely to hear. Cacao. Now (laughs) it's time for the seedling round where short questions lead to tasty answers. Mm, Okay. What is your favorite gift to give yourself?
0: My favorite gift to give myself is... I would say, oh, wow. My favorite gift to give myself are really funky, 70s style, long sleeve sort of mesh dresses that I never actually wear, but I totally will at some point.
1: Oh, wow. I love that. (laughs) I have so many. I just... And by just, I mean, probably it was seven to eight months ago. Time is hard, but I just bought myself these like bell bottom pants that like make me look like I'm one of the sister's sledge.
0: Mm, Love
1: it. Mm, Yes. How do you measure time? Lately,
0: I have been measuring time by deadlines. (laughs) When Mm -hmm. is a cut of an episode due back to my... Production partner? When is tech rehearsal? When is this research packet for another podcast I'm working on? Do I think that in the immediate now, that's an okay way to measure time. I think always measuring time by work deadlines is problematic, <laughs> but <laughs> right now it's a pretty good way for me to stay on track.
1: Mm, love that. Lastly, if you were to recommend a puppet horror film for beginners, <laughs> hmm. what is that film? That is an amazing question.
0: I mean, the OG answer, of course, is the original Child's Play. That's kind of the gateway film for a lot of folks. But I would say one of my personal favorites. And it's debatable, like whether or not these are actual puppets or because they're mascots, do they count as puppets? Killer Mm. clowns from outer space is, I don't know, there's something about it. It's just so wonderful. And so just like, I'm glad that that exists. So yeah.
1: (laughs) Great. (laughs) I'm glad I asked. (laughs) No, great question. Uh, Cacao, that ends the seedling round. So I'd like to end on this question to you. What's the question of the week? The question of the week
0: is, how can I improve my active listening skills? Oh,
1: that's an excellent question <laughs> that I too am asking myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that was good. The. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you again for being on the show. And where can people connect with you? You can find me on Instagram, Casey, share number one. You
0: can find me on could be pretty com. I'm there
1: too. Sometimes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can say hi. And I think around the time that this will be coming out is before you'll be speaking at the Black Podcast Festival. Mm -hmm. Do you know the dates on that? May 28th is when I'm speaking. Awesome. Okay. So if you are listening and tickets are still available, be sure to grab those if you're interested. Folks, thank you. You know, I appreciate your ears. I will catch you in the next one.